0: The source of the speeches I use here on The Choice Voice Podcast comes from a list of the top 100 American speeches of the 20th century. This list is compiled by researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Texas A&M University, among other places. It reflects the opinions of 137 leading scholars of American public address. My choice of speeches should not be construed to reflect or promote any point of view. They are simply considered great speeches. Richard M. Nixon, The Great Silent Majority, November 3, 1969 Good evening, my fellow Americans. Tonight I want to talk to you on a subject of deep concern to all Americans and to many people in all parts of the world the war in Vietnam. I believe that one of the reasons for the deep division about Vietnam is that many Americans have lost confidence in what their government has told them about our policy. The American people cannot and should not be asked to support a policy which involves the overriding issues of war and peace unless they know the truth about that policy. Tonight, therefore, I would like to answer some of the questions that I know are on the minds of many of you listening to me. How and why did America get involved in Vietnam in the first place? How has this administration changed the policy of the previous administration? What has really happened in the negotiations in Paris and on the battlefront in Vietnam? What choices do we have if we are to end the war? What are the prospects for peace? Now, let me begin by describing the situation I found when I was inaugurated on January 20th. The war had been going on for four years. 31,000 Americans had been killed in action. The training program for the South Vietnamese was beyond, behind schedule. 540,000 Americans were in Vietnam with no plans to reduce the number. No progress had been made at the negotiations in Paris, and the United States had not put forth a comprehensive peace proposal. The war was causing deep division at home and criticism from many of our friends as well as our enemies abroad in view of these circumstances there were some who urged that i end the war at once by ordering the immediate withdrawal of all american forces from a political standpoint this would have been a popular and easy course to follow after all we became involved in the war while my predecessor was in office i could blame the defeat which would be the result of my action on him, and come out as the peacemaker. Some put it to me quite bluntly. This was the only way to avoid allowing Johnson's war to become Nixon's war. But I had a greater obligation than to think of only the years of my administration and of the next election. I had to think of the effect of my decision on the next generation, and on the future of peace and freedom in America and in the world. Let us all understand that the question before us is not whether some Americans are for peace and some Americans are against peace. The question at issue is not whether Johnson's war becomes Nixon's war. The great question is, how can we win America's peace? Well, let us turn now to the fundamental issue. Why and how did the United States become involved in Vietnam in the first place? Fifteen years ago, North Vietnam, with the logistical support of communist China and the Soviet Union, launched a campaign to impose a communist government on South Vietnam by instigating and supporting a revolution. In response to the request of the government of South Vietnam, President Eisenhower sent economic aid and military equipment to assist the people of South Vietnam in their efforts to prevent a communist takeover. Seven years ago, President Kennedy sent 16,000 military personnel to Vietnam as combat advisors. Four years ago, President Johnson sent American combat forces to South Vietnam. Now, many believe that President Johnson's decision to send American combat forces to South Vietnam was wrong. And many others, I among them, have been strongly critical of the way the war has been conducted. But the question facing us today is, now that we are in the war, what is the best way to end it? In January, I could only conclude that the precipitate withdrawal of all American forces from Vietnam would be a disaster, not only for South Vietnam, but for the United States and for the cause of peace. We'll continue reading from this speech transcript after a quick break. Now back to where we left off. For the South Vietnamese, our precipitate withdrawal would inevitably allow the communists to repeat the massacres which followed their takeover in the North 15 years before. They then murdered more than 50,000 people, and hundreds of thousands more died in slave labor camps. We saw a prelude of what would happen in South Vietnam when the communists entered the city of Hue last year. During their brief rule there, there was a bloody reign of terror in which 3,000 civilians were clubbed, shot to death, and buried in mass graves. With the sudden collapse of our support, these atrocities at Hue would become the nightmare of the entire nation, and particularly for the million and a half Catholic refugees who fled to South Vietnam when the Communists took over in the North. For the United States, this first defeat in our nation's history would result in a collapse of confidence in American leadership not only in Asia but throughout the world. Three American presidents have recognized the great stakes involved in Vietnam and understood what had to be done. In 1963, President Kennedy, with his characteristic eloquence and clarity, said, We want to see a stable government there carrying on a struggle to maintain its national independence. We believe strongly in that. We are not going to withdraw from that effort. In my opinion, for us to withdraw from that effort would mean a collapse not only of South Vietnam, but Southeast Asia. So, we are going to stay there. President Eisenhower and President Johnson expressed the same conclusion during their terms of office. For the future of peace precipitate withdrawal would be a disaster of immense magnitude. A nation cannot remain great if it betrays its allies and lets down its friends. Our defeat and humiliation in South Vietnam without question would promote recklessness in the councils of those great powers who have not yet abandoned their goal of world conquest. This would spark violence wherever our commitments help maintain the peace. In the Middle East, in Berlin, eventually even in the Western Hemisphere. Ultimately, this would cost more lives. It would not bring peace. It would bring more war. For these reasons, I rejected the recommendation that I should end the war by immediately withdrawing all our forces. I chose instead to change American policy on both the negotiating front and the battlefront in order to end the war fought on many fronts. I initiated a pursuit for peace on many fronts. In a television speech on May 14th, in a speech before the United Nations, on a number of other occasions, I set forth our peace proposals in great detail. We have offered the complete withdrawal of all outside forces within one year. We have proposed a ceasefire under international supervision. We have offered free elections under international supervision with the communists participating in the organization and conduct of the elections as an organized political force, and the Saigon government has pledged to accept the result of the election. We have not put forth our proposals on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. We have indicated that we are willing to discuss the proposals that have been put forth by the other side. We have declared that anything is negotiable accept the right of the people of South Vietnam to determine their own future. At the Paris Peace Conference, Ambassador Lodge has demonstrated our flexibility and good faith in 40 public meetings. Hanoi has refused even to discuss our proposals. They demand our unconditional acceptance of their terms, which are that we withdraw all American forces immediately and unconditionally, and that we overthrow the government of South Vietnam as we leave. We have not limited our peace initiatives to public forums and public statements. I recognized in January that a long and bitter war like this usually cannot be settled in a public forum. That is why, in addition to the public statements and negotiations, I have explored every possible private avenue that might lead to a settlement. Tonight, I am taking the unprecedented step of disclosing to you some of our other initiatives for peace. Initiatives we undertook privately and secretly because we thought we might thereby open a door which publicly would be closed. This podcast and our other podcast are productions of Little Red Hen Industries. The supporting cast who helps me bake the bread includes Techno King John C. Brandy, fact checker Abraham Lincoln, French consultant Virginia Mitchell, media expert Favor Abbas Ike, psychologist Sigmund Freud, rabbit hole advisor Dr. Mark Parrott, sound designer Guglielmo Marconi, Spanish consultant Cameron J.K. Brandy, videographer Alfred Hitchcock, audio props Les Paul, and inspiration goes to Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, and Bob Proctor. We also have a website, and you can subscribe to both podcasts. You can even send us a video audio, or text message, but of course, you'll have to head to the show notes, either on your phone or on the web, to actually get links and stuff. I mean, I could read the URLs where you could subscribe, support, or leave one of those video or audio messages, but you really don't want me to do that. And those explicit and clickable links are in the show notes. Finally, you can find us on Podmatch, where we consider guests, as well as consider guesting on other people's pods. And really, finally, the music for our pods comes from Cute by Bensound and from Piano Background by Nick Simon Adams, both on freesound.org.